Everybody out there in Milwaukee and out on the internet listening to our show. This is Wisdom for Life. We're doing a special broadcast. We are all uh, observing our social distancing, so we're trying out something new. Dan and I are each of us logging in and recording on our end, so hopefully this is going to be a great show for you. Today we're going to talk about... uh, a distinction that's important in philosophy that you might not think has a big part of, of your life, but actually uh, is, is quite important, and it's the difference between real or actual and apparent goods and bad. So let me uh, turn it over just for a second to my co-host, Dan Hayes. Hey, thank you very much, Greg. It is a lovely day. Got a little sunshine going on, and... You know, we're all hunkered down in our houses due to the whole uh, coronavirus. And um, hopefully uh, in this time, we realize that maybe some of the things that we thought are good are not actually good. And that will allow you to have the ability to focus more on the things that are actually good. Yeah, and, and we can say similarly about things that people consider to be bad that maybe some of them really are bad, but quite a few of them turn out to be not so bad after all. And, and philosophy gives us resources for not only deciding these sorts of questions, is something really good? Does it just appear to be good? Is something bad? Does it just appear to be bad? But it also helps us to prioritize between them. And now, uh, in a time of crisis, we actually do have to do a lot of prioritization, don't mm-hmm. we? We have to decide what we're going to give our time to, what we're going to spend money on, who we're going to do things for, who we're going to say, no, maybe not right now, you know, not today, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, at, let's uh, maybe let's talk about the uh, Aristotelian version of this. Okay, so Aristotle is a pretty representative figure in in relation to this. You could say that his take is kind of similar to that of Plato. Uh, so, two different schools that that also get lumped together. And then there's a lot of um, early medieval and uh, late medieval and modern philosophers who, who take up Aristotle's position in this way, even if they're not Aristotelians. And Aristotle tells us that as human beings, we're confronted with a variety of things that are good, and they're good in different ways. So he will distinguish between goodness in terms of, say, the just and its opposite, the unjust, the, you know, the right and the wrong. But he also talks about something that we might consider more aesthetic. He talks about the beautiful and the ugly, which also can be translated as the noble and the base or the fair and the foul. And then he talks about pleasure. And unlike some other philosophical positions, Aristotle considers pleasure to be a good. You know, so when we 
sit in front of the TV and, and as we've been doing, tune into a show and put our feet up and uh, eat a little snack or something like that. That's that's pleasant, right? It's not uh, producing justice in the world or doing something you know inherently beautiful or noble, but it's pleasant and that's also good. And pain or suffering, uh, Aristotle views as bad. And, and so there's different modalities. And then we can talk about different big basic objects. And when I, when I talk to students about this in classes, we're usually looking at Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics Book 1, where he talks about different kinds of life and happiness. And we ask, well, what, what are the components of the good life? What matters to you? That's another way of putting it to, to these students. And they'll say, usually they'll say things like, I value my family or I value my friends or having a good career. And then we start peeling things back a little bit. And we say, okay, that, that's fine. Those are the stock answers. What else matters to you? And some of them will come straight out and say, I want to be rich. I, I need to have money either to like be able to buy all the things that I want or a sense of security or it could be a status symbol. And once they start talking about status, then you know we can start talking about what the Greeks called honor. And that's something people want as well, right? And these are all goods for Aristotle, but they're not the good. They're not what's most good. But you're you're going to say something. Right? Yeah, isn't this the uh, one of the you know uh, arguments against Aristotle's uh, argument of the good, in that uh, he requires or is expecting that to have the good life, um, you have to have certain goods like you know friends for good conversation and a little bit of money so you can have like a at least a modicum of pressure pleasure in one's life. And for a lot of people, those things may not ever be afforded to them. Well, that's not really an argument against Aristotle's position. That would be sort of realizing the implication that for many people, the Aristotelian good life might not be realizable. Um, but that doesn't mean that we can't have a semi-good Aristotelian life or anything like that, right? Sure. A lot of times we're, we're, you know, these moral theories, we don't, we don't say, well, everybody's going to be reaching the pinnacle of it. Um, they can still provide us guidance. So Aristotle, you know, he doesn't say that somebody, let's talk about what he considers to be really good. He calls it virtuous activity. So that's kind of old-fashioned sounding. But when we talk about meaningful or moral activity, something where you're doing good in the world and you're, it's flowing from the kind of person that you've become, that for Aristotle is what's, what's most satisfying, most, and it's also most pleasant too. Um, so, you know, the virtues are things like justice or courage or temperance or even good humor, according to Aristotle, um, being able to laugh with people but not give offense to them in, in the process, not cause them undue pain. So being able to do these things, which could fit in very well with our careers or could fit in very well with taking care of a person, um, you, you know, you're right in a sense that Aristotle thought that it was going to be mostly the upper and middle classes who would enjoy this in the Greece of his time. But contemporary Aristotelians say that this is something that is possible for, if not necessarily all people, at least most people, even uh, outside of the you know developed world in, in the third world. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, for Aristotle, the core of, of what's good 
is, at least if we're looking at the active life, it's developing and, and exercising these virtues, these traits of character that are stable, that are chosen, that are, that are good for us and good for other people. And then the other stuff, you can think of it as sort of like the icing on the cake. You still have cake even if you don't have icing. But it's, it's good to have um, people, you know, relationships, uh, friends, family, colleagues that you can engage with. Um, it's good to have some means so that you're not stuck living on the streets mm-hmm. or in dire straits. And those are the, the components of, of happiness. But to go back to the issue of the good, Aristotle thinks that all of these things are good. Mm-hmm. They're just not all as good as each other. Mm-hmm. And so if, if we... So... Oh, go ahead. To your point, you're talking about, like, uh, moral virtue. You're talking about hexus for that action, correct? Yeah, and so we should we should say what that means. Mm-hmm. So hexus is a Greek term, and it comes from the word to have. And so what we've got in, in that, it often gets translated as habit, but it's it's a little bit stronger than it, just a habit. Is it not on so, an action chosen knowingly for its own sake? Well, it produces those, mm-hmm. but a but a hexus is actually the disposition ah. that produces those. So if you let, let's let's take some concrete examples. Let, let's take courage because that's really applicable right now. There's a lot of people who are engaging in actions right now that are courageous. And there's a lot of people that are engaging in actions that are cowardly or on the other extreme, rash or foolhardy, right? So the, the people paper. who say, well, okay, so, okay, I, I was going to talk about the spring the spring break thing ah. first and cor- corona parties. But, yeah, let's talk about toilet paper. <laughs> so hoarding, hoarding behavior is arguably a cowardly act. That's an unjust act. It's also an unjust act. That's right. And, and it might also, you know, be vicious in other ways, too. But if you think about the inability to deal with one's own fear, anxiety in a time in, of uncertainty and this, this, you know, acquisitive drive to accumulate as much of this product as possible. And it is unjust because it deprives other people of the opportunity to, to have what they need in the process. Um, now, you could say... Is, is this a, a real sign of the person's character? Um, it could be because some people actually are cowardly in that way. They are, uh, it's become part of their character, right? Other people sometimes just fail. And, and Aristotle calls this lack of self-control or in Greek, akrasia. It's often translated as incontinence, which is kind of ironic in terms of toilet paper, right? right? Because <laughs> we, we understand incontinence in a very narrow way. The, the people who translated Aristotle, you know, in, in a couple centuries ago, understood it as like giving into your desires or fears or other, other things that are driving you when reason would tell you, no, no, you don't need to do this. And so yeah, hoarding toilet paper uh, is an example of cowardly action. It's not courageous, and some people might spin it that way. Oh, I'm, I'm, you know, saving my family by getting myself 256 rolls. Nah, I don't think so, you know. Or some people like the guy who was uh, essentially um, profiteering. You know, he filled up an entire storage locker. Yeah. With uh, uh, the hand sanitizer. Not... Yeah. yeah, but also I think toilet paper, right? Uh, uh... Um. Sure. Okay. Yeah. So, so any of these goods, right? Yeah. He might tell himself, oh, I'm being courageous. I'm being bold. I'm being an entrepreneur by cornering the market. But it's really a cowardly act, right? right. 
And then on the other side, the people who are uh, unwilling to take any precautions and maybe even are like showing us how, um, you know, Cavalier. how unafraid they are. Yeah. Having Corona parties or things like that. That's that's not that's not courage. That is foolhardiness, Absolutely. you know. So so those you know, that that's a concrete example, I think, that can help us understand. And you can also ask about motivation. What would motivate somebody to say, um, I'm going to, you know, go on spring break anyway? Well, you, you, they, they came out and said it. We paid for it already. So money is more important than behaving in a prudent way for them, you know, and they've done a prioritization between two different goods. Money is a good, you know. Uh, losing money is a bad thing, but it's not as important in the grand scheme of things than keeping people safe and remaining healthy yourself. So I, that's how an Aristotelian would look at these sorts so of things. I feel like we could move to uh, another Hellenistic school. Um, we have the Stoics and their dichotomy of how what things are good and what things are not good. And so the the major basis the Stoics define as what is good is those things that are within your complete control. And so those are your actions and your aversions and your desires. And and everything else falls into a, a well, category of indifference. Sort of. Uh, the, the, the bad falls within the sphere of your control, too, though. Oh, absolutely. So, yeah. so it's almost as if you've got, like, two extremes, right? That, that come together in the middle, what's in our control that's good, what's in our control that's bad, and then everything else for them is, strictly speaking, indifferent. Although they, they do, and we'll talk about this in a bit, they do distinguish between preferred and Dis rejected indifference, which confuses people when they hear that. <laughs> but uh, I like the idea that um, there's, say, uh, two sets of things that you might consider good. And say you have a daughter, and say you have... Uh, the ability to get some ice cream. Would you ever, would you ever trade uh, your daughter for any amount of ice cream versus? Well, I hope not. I hope not. Uh, and, yeah. and the vast majority of us will say, no, there's no amount of ice cream that we will ever uh, trade our daughter Substitute, for. Substitute, yeah, um, yeah. Whereas if you have money, money is in the same level of good, uh, idea of good and you definitely tr trade money for ice cream that's not a problem but you like automatically go into this like cognitive uh you have to make this moral decision about trading something that is of of absolutely different value for something that is not and so this is a two-tiered uh level of what is uh potential goods and so the goods are the things uh, in Stoic, uh, uh, are those things that are under your control, as well as all the things that are bad, and everything are like dependent upon the choices. So money, in this case, as a uh, a preferred indifferent, um, can be used for either good or bad ends. And so, in and of itself, it is not good or bad. It is how you use it. Yeah, that's right, and. We can say that from the Stoic perspective, there's a whole bunch of things that fit in there. And this is where I think they, at least at, at, at first, they might lose a lot of people. Because the Stoics, you know, a lot of us can say, ah, money, that's not that important. But the Stoics also say that about health and illness. Right. And about other good, what we, what we t they say they're not actually rightly called goods, but things that, that ordinary people would call goods of the body, like attractiveness or strength or... Um, Reputation. 
Yeah, yeah. reputation, social status, uh, whether or not you get promoted or not. um, All of those things, they would say, are strictly speaking indifference. And so they don't have, they're not rightly called good or bad. And where we make ourselves miserable in a lot of cases is by calling them good or bad. And then when we do that, we pursue those things or we avoid them. So if I think that getting sick is a really bad thing, then I will do whatever I can to avoid that. And, you know, this isn't to say that a stoic would be cavalier about our, our bodies and say, oh, I'm just going to go out there and forget social distancing and I'm not going to wash my hands or anything like that. That would be imprudent, right? Absolutely. Um, but they, they would tell us that in this time of crisis, we, we really should be placing the focus on what's most properly ours, whether or not we're good or bad people and the actions that, that stem from that. So they, they line up with the Aristotelians uh, in that respect, right? Yeah. Virtue's a good thing, vice is a bad thing, but where they differ is saying, strictly speaking, those are the only good or bad things, and everything else is in this middle category. Like you said, it's a two-tier system so that um, whatever value, and, and things do have values, whatever value you get from pleasure or wealth or um, reputation, no amount of it heaped up will ever make you a good person. Uh, and the goodness of virtue it outweighs all of those things. And the badness of vice. So no amount of being, you know, well-equipped, uh, having as much pleasure as possible, all sorts of social connections, none of that will ever make up for being a bad person and doing bad things. No amount of toilet paper or hand sanitizer will make you a bad, good person if you got them in bad ways. Yeah. Now, we should talk about um, what the Stoics call use or dealing with things, dealing with indifference, because this is where it starts to become, I think, if people were lost before that and they're like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to buy into that. Now they can say, oh, okay, I, I can kind of get behind this. So while indifference themselves are neither good nor bad, and they're strictly speaking not really in our control, um, although we can you know, influence them to some, some degree, mm-hmm. we don't control the outcomes. How we use all these things, the Stoics are really clear, that is in our control. Absolutely. And, and that is good or bad. So whether, you know, let's say you just happen to find yourself with a stash of toilet paper because your relative who lives in your house uh, did panic buy and ordered a whole bunch of it, and you've got like, I don't know, 150 rolls, which I think a lot of people would consider to be vast wealth at this time. Um, <laughs> who knows? Or are you they... smog sitting upon a, a tower of white gold there? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so let's say you had that, right? Now, that by itself is neither good nor bad, but what you do with it really matters. Do you continue to hoard it? Do you, do you, are you like, are you like a dragon, you know, rolling around in its, uh, it's, its hoard? It's uh, so you know, soft with, and comfy. Exactly. <laughs> you know, it's uh, sharp. Looking, looking at it, uh, you know, and, and marveling at, at how well equipped you are. Or, or do you, you know, do things like see whether your neighbors uh, are in need and, and go to them and, and maybe you give them a roll once in a while. You don't just give away the whole stash. Um, now, doing that would be how you exercise these virtues like justice or prudence, you know, practical wisdom. And so, so let's, you know, let's it, go to justice there. So we have the, okay. you know, um, justice goes down to the actions and how we should be treating others. 
And, yeah. And so if I have a glut and I know my, my neighbors around me are, are in dire need um, of either a bidet or uh, some toilet paper, then it would be just for me as a neighbor to um, give them something that I have a glut of and they are uh, absolutely bereft of. Deprived of. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's completely right. Um, and, you know, we could add to this. I think a lot of people... I don't know what it's like where where you are, but we live in an apartment building and we know some of our neighbors and we don't know the rest. And now we're we're probably not going to be like going door to door and knocking and saying, is there anything you need? And we, and we frankly don't have, uh, you know, enough stuff to do that with anyway. Um, but let's say we did. Is there anything like a duty to not just, you know, wait passively for one of your neighbors to need help, but to go out and see, who does need help? Is that part of justice? What do you think? Um, I guess it depends upon your means. Um, and, and also, like, for example, I have a friend who is uh, circulating a letter in his part of the neighborhood um, saying, like, you know, he's young and virile and has transportation and will go out and um, – acquire things if people need to go him to go to the store for them or something along those lines and so um like me or him going out of the store is significantly less dangerous than someone that is uh elderly and potentially immunocompromised and so yes. i feel like there there is a a greater requirement depending on the greater uh difference in um what your neighbors need versus what you can provide. And so it's not like I should just be giving up everything and all my time for anyone who asks it, but definitely there are certain people that are in the greatest need. And uh, we, I feel that we have a obligation to uh, support them. Yeah. I think that makes really good sense. And that's, um, where a distinction that we make in moral philosophy can be quite helpful. Uh, not everybody buys into this distinction, mm -hmm. but sometimes we talk about perfect and imperfect duties. A perfect duty would be one or a strict duty. And then uh, there's a very a variety of words where we can call them meritorious or supererogatory. And the, the basic idea is this. There's some things where we have a we have a moral duty to act either to do something or not to do something, to prevent something, to promote something. And we have it at, at that time, and it, it, there's no exception to it. So if I see you fall down a well, I shouldn't say, well, you know, I, I do have a duty to help people when they're in a well, but not in this case, you know, uh, I'll make an exception for this. Uh, I, I need to act on, on that particular situation. Or if, if you need to get to the hospital, you know, let's say um, you've been injured in some terrible way, um, I could say, well, you know, there's a lot of people who need to go to the hospital. Maybe I'll find another one instead of Dan. Mm -hmm. No, that you, that's not. That's, <laughs> you, I have a strict duty, right? Um, and there's a lot of strict duties that way. And then we have others where we get to decide where we want to devote our, our resources. Mm -hmm. You know, I think you're right. We we do have a duty to be as as people would call it, being kind or beneficent or generous to others. Um, even more so, I would say, in, in a crisis. Mm -hmm. um, but it doesn't say that we have to do that for every single person all the time. And there's, I think there's a danger for quite a few people of 
something like uh, they could go through all their resources, which is a problem then for them. But but also we do this psychologically and people get burned out, mm-hmm. this feeling that we have to be there for everybody all of the time. Um, it, it might be enough that we just do some good mm-hmm. rather than trying to do all the good. Right. Right. If you, and, and so, if you become burned out, then you are no longer a good to yourself or anyone else. So there's, you need to have yeah. at least something reserved for yourself in order to keep on going. That's true. And, and, you know, it's interesting. I, I was talking with my students about this before in ethics classes, when we would get to certain uh, parts of the content is there a duty to self-care? Do we have a moral obligation to take care of ourselves? Not in a sort of selfish way where we're like, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to buy up all of the luxury skin products because that's my, my self-care and forget about the poor or anything like that. No, but, but, you know, like basic self maintenance and care, getting enough sleep, um, making sure to, uh, you know, engage in personal hygiene, um, saying no to certain, expectations or requirements or or obligations when we're at the risk of being burnt out Mm -hmm. all of those things i think would would fit in with that that self-care but going going back to talking about the good so we've brought up two different schools right the stoics and the aristotelians and there is a big difference between them mm-hmm. in that the Stoics would say, hey, you Aristotelians, a lot of the things that you call good aren't really good, and a lot of the things you call bad aren't really bad. They're actually indifference. Um, now, some people uh, said that ah, this is just a verbal argument because the Stoics still end up behaving like, you know, with this preferred and, and rejected indifference. They're, they're doing the same thing as as anybody else, whether it's Aristotle or, uh, you know, Aquinas or Augustine or Plato. um, It's really just a terminological difference. Mm -hmm. I've never bought that. I think the Stoics and the Aristotelians really are on different pages when it comes to that. What do you think? Uh, I I do agree in that regard. Um, Even though, so this is kind of the idea of what a performative ethics and that if, from different ethical backgrounds, you can come to similar ethical outcomes. Um, but I do think, especially with the idea that um, the Aristotelians still value pleasure, at least modicums of pleasure, um, as the good, then there are people that are fundamentally unable to acquire that, especially if you think of like people that are... Um, in, yeah, in, yeah. in horrible prisons or in slavery of that sort of thing, it becomes very difficult to ever reach a, a life of flourishing. Well, you know, Aristotle doesn't say that pleasure is part of the life of flourishing. He says that that virtuous activity is is the core component of that and that you will have some pleasure in, in doing that. And then having, you know, friends or, or you know, relationships and some small amount of... of uh, means as well he in saying that pleasure is a good he's not saying that it has to be there in the the best life but i think you and i are are we're, we're sort of emphasizing different things here your 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 concern is more can everybody have this mine is less are these fundamentally different perspectives just in what they define as good or bad you know uh so could you clarify that statement well, I'm I'm less concerned about whether everybody could enjoy 
the best life or anything like that in terms of whether whether uh, an ethics is is a viable ethics or not um it could, it could be that Aristotle, or let, let's say we, we pick somebody else and we don't, we're not going to use Aristotle. We're going to call him uh, Professor X. Professor X comes by and says, human happiness consists in just one thing, and that one thing is only available to the most absolutely developed and possessed of resources people. So only, you know, a tiny fragment of the population will ever enjoy it ever in the history of mankind. So, you know, you'd be saying, well, he's got to be wrong because, you know, happiness has to be enjoyed by more people than just a few. But what if he actually was right? If he was right, which is all I'm really worried about, then that would be a bad implication. We'd all be in a terrible situation where none of us can really be happy, yeah. but he'd still be right. Correct. And so I, I don't think that whether whether happiness can be enjoyed by everybody is the index of whether a moral theory is correct or not. I think I think I can agree in some sense and say, look, if it's something like Professor X, that's so crazy, uh, that can't possibly be the case. Because if it is, we're all t totally, you know, uh, out to sea. Um, but, you know, the fact that some people, you know, let's think about Plato. Plato places the good similarly in the development of virtue, but it's also in, you know, the possession of wisdom and um, not everybody can, can afford a life in which they are going to be devoting themselves to that. That doesn't mean that Plato's automatically wrong because of that. No. Um, you know, it's interesting because people make similar arguments against the Stoics. Ah, the way the way of life you're choosing is so hard. Who could ever do that? You say the sage only comes around every 500 years, so you know the perfect Stoic is very rare. And you can easily respond to them and say, "Well, you know, we're not saying we're trying to be the perfect Stoic. We're just trying to make our lives incrementally better, and we're looking for some guidance on." what we should choose and what we should reject and how we ought to think about things and, um, you know, whether it's going to help us along on the way. And, and here's, so I'll, I'll shut up in a second. Let you say some stuff because I can see you thinking about things. Um, so the stoic way of doing that is one blueprint, right? And that blueprint includes some ideas about what's good and what's bad. And the Aristotelian way of looking at it is another blueprint. And they overlap to some degree, and then they're different in, in some degree. So you, you almost got to let, you got to pick which one you're going to follow. Or you can say, well, maybe both of them are wrong. Could be. And, and maybe the best side answer is I don't know. Uh, and, and hold off uh, judgment there. Um, but the... I wanted to get to like the distinction of not like who can ex expect to actually achieve these goals, but um, the the difference um, that you were trying that you were uh, trying to enumerate with between the Stoic view and the Aristotelian view um, that the Aristotelian has like a grab bag of values, and I guess that's the question I wanted to answer. Yeah, except it's not a it's not a grab bag. That's actually a great way to to start thinking about it because I think and I see this again. 
when my students first start encountering it, they write papers on Aristotle and they're like, well, Aristotle thinks that the happy life and the good is just all these different things. Then they list a whole bunch of stuff Mm -hmm. and there's no ordering to it. There's no arrangement to it. There's no, you could say, hierarchization or prioritization within it. For Aristotle, in saying that all of these things are good doesn't mean that they're they're all like on the same level. It means that there's a recognition that there's something positive there. So when I have a um, snack and like I like to take chocolate chips and uh, I, I dip my spoon in peanut butter and then I stick it in the chocolate chips and I put pop that in my mouth and I chew on it and I get a, effectively the same thing that a Reese's peanut butter cup would be, only much cheaper and uh, I can you know have as much of it as I want or as little of it as I want. Big okay, old so that's dopamine pleasure. spike. Yeah, exactly. So that that's that's pleasant, and that is good. And and there's it's good for it's not just good in one way. It's good in that I like the taste of it, and it makes me you know uh, we won't say happy in any sort of full sense, but it makes me happy a little bit. And and you're right. There's there's physical correlates to it, right? Um, and it's, we can say similar things too about like when so when we finish recording this, we have a sense of accomplishment, mm-hmm. and that's better than the at least it should be better. Um, if, if I'm properly ordered and organized, that should be better in terms of the amount of goodness or the kind of goodness, the quality, quality of it, than just popping the, the chocolate and peanut butter in my mouth, mm-hmm. you know. And so Aristotle sets up, and I think most most um, people who organize their life fairly rationally, they, they do this. They say some things are more important than others. It doesn't mean that the other thing isn't, isn't good, but it's just not as good. Mm-hmm. Although some of them could be apparent goods. Think about like, um, you know, think about hard drugs. Um, oh, yeah. Heroin, you know, not really a good thing, intensely pleasurable for people. But it, it ruins people's lives, mm-hmm. you know. Aristotle, I use this again as an example. Aristotle thinks you can have a right amount of drinking. Mm-hmm. And it's not conducive to health, of course, but it could be good for other things. There is no, like, virtuous mean of taking heroin. Right. You know? <laughs> There's no right amount to take. It's, all, it's always going to be bad for you. And if you want to go to alcohol, I guess, for certain people who are alcoholics, you know, at, at that oh, point in time, yeah, yeah. No, no amount of alcohol is going to be good for you. Exactly, yeah. And, and there's always, you know, so this, this goes back to our, our theme, the real good versus the apparent good. Mm-hmm. So many of the things that we do in life where we make – bad or also hasty decisions, it's because we're taking things that are only apparent goods as being genuine goods So this or apparent bads as, as genuine bads. This kind of brings me to the idea of the, the hedonic cycle. And so uh, oh, okay. a lot of times... you got to explain that yeah, for our listeners. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to explain it right now. So the hedonic cycle is the idea that um, uh, a lot of times we are... are questing to gain something so say um that that new promotion at work or that that new car or that whatever that new dress any any physical tangible object and and you get it and you get that little dopamine spike but um shortly thereafter uh that object isn't going to give you continue to give you that dopamine spike and you reset back to a a standard level of happiness yeah. Um, and this actually works both ways. And so you look at people who um, become like double to quadruple amputees and 
at first they're like in a really bad state, but after over time, they come back to kind of a relative mean um, happiness. And, and you can see this also really distinctly in, um, Victor Frankl's work, uh, Man's Search for Meaning, where he describes oh, yeah. this from his experience in the concentration camps in Germany during World War II, and how he could see that people, even in this abjectly bad experience, were having were were uh, relatively happy to what they were even before this, and um, and it kind of depends on one's uh, view and state of mind, and so the idea is to try to not be uh, totally influenced on those things that will only give you momentary happiness. Yeah, not take them as if they're going to be reliable, continual providers, you might say, right? right. Or, you know, if we want to put it in like business terms, good earners. You know? <laughs> now, it's interesting. When, as you were talking about that, I was thinking one of the examples is people want to buy a new video game, right? Mm -hmm. And they're like, oh, this is going to be great. And they line up around the, the block to get it. Or, you know, people do this with technology stuff like Apple products. You see them. Got to get that iPhone. Out. Yeah, exactly. And, the, and it's not going to be any different if you get it being the first person or 20th person in line or whether you get it a week later. It's still the, the same basic piece of technology. But, you know, a really well-designed game is going to provide um, more of that over time than a poorly designed, let's just get it out there to make a quick buck kind of game, right? And this is why people gravitate to that. We could say that about literature too, right? If you're reading cheap, let's, you know, knock out uh, a thousand words real quick uh, about novels. this romance stuff. Yeah. Uh, if you Or we could talk about media stuff too. You know, a lot of the news that we, we consume is just garbage. Right. And a lot of the times it's people like just chattering about the same stuff or you turn on the radio and they're like, well, we don't know what the story is, but we'll update you as soon as possible. You know, and you're like, ah, that's the same as an hour ago. So there's, there's things that will provide us with um, rich engagement. And a lot of that is going to be sat, you know, satisfying for us, pleasurable for us. Um, and so, you know, if we think about going back now to virtue ethics, what it means to have a virtue when it's become part of who you are is like that. It's something that you, you respond to situations um, in a very flexible way, uh, but, but in a consistent way. And so you do justice or you do courage or you do generosity and, you know, you can rely on that continually happening. And it's a way of like um, being, being involved in reality as an agent, but also experiencing reality that is quite satisfying. And, and I think that can, you know, that might be one way off the hedonic treadmill, cultivating things like that. Whereas, you know, buying the next consumer product or, you know, going back to our old example, being able to look at your massive mountain of toilet paper in the, the pantry um, or wherever you've put it out in the garage um, <laughs> and piled up on your bed because it's the most important thing in your <laughs> life. That's that's not going to help you very long, right? Right. And so I wanted to quick touch on uh, kind of a Buddhist topic of yeah. um, uh, emptiness. And so this is an idea that uh, we are the ones that are defining what things are in like good or bad terms. And so, you know, we hear 
a um, the traffic outside our window, and you might consider that to be annoying, or like you know, uh, the neighborhood kids yelling and screaming outside the window, and um, we're the ones that are defining that that is a good or a bad thing. And in and of itself, all it is is, in this case, sound waves. And we are perceiving these sound waves within our consciousness. And if you, you stop from the point where you are assigning that sound wave to a object and then also assigning that sound wave to, or that object to a you know, good or bad judgment, if you just yeah. look at it as something that appears in consciousness, that allows you to uh, take back and, and walk back and and realize the the very basics of the the only thing that is at this point is a sound in consciousness and you can you have the ability because it is only resides within your consciousness to uh decide for yourself if you want to consider that a good or a bad thing yeah and and um what that points to is our agency and that we have a responsibility. And this is something we've talked about before. I think a lot of people view themselves as just sort of the prey of their emotions or their their seemingly natural but actually habitual responses to things, labeling them, classifying them, and then, and then almost like automatically after the judgment is made, reacting to them. And a, a main part of the, the whole idea behind... Um, weaning yourself away this isn't the way buddhists put it but i think it's actually consistent with buddhism weaning yourself away from suffering that you're undergoing that you don't have to be is realizing that the problem isn't out there by itself the problem is you making it a problem and that's very similar to you know stoicism and interestingly i think that although aristotelians haven't really stressed this that much there's there's plenty of resources there in Aristotle for talking about things in, in such a way, you know, um, as, as to do that. I think it's, it's something inherent in a lot of wisdom traditions and a lot of virtue ethics, this uh, realization of our, our role in things. All right. So we have a question that we could talk about. We've uh, from, stole it from uh, Reddit here and uh, from user Ash640. Um, after being quarantined, has anyone discovered that they have actually been an introvert this whole time? Any thoughts on that, Greg? So that, yeah, so that, I mean, that's a big open question, and we'll have to do a little bit of um, work to make it connect up with this topic of what's really good, what's really bad. So if somebody's an introvert, you know, that means that they enjoy being by themselves and, you know, correlatively, they're not super happy about being thrown into situations where they are stuck in the churn with other people bouncing ideas and, and energy off of them all day long, right? They'd, they'd prefer, sometimes there can be very high functioning introverts mm -hmm. where they are good at networking and leading meetings and all that sort of stuff, but it takes a toll on them and they need to, to withdraw. And I think you're, you're more introverted than I am. I'm not a pure extrovert in that I, I really need that sort of interaction. Mm -hmm. The way some people, if, if they're not getting it, being quarantined is, is awful for them. Right? <laughs> um, but um, I, I, while I like it, um, I can also be on my own. So I'm kind of like in the middle, but I think you're more introverted, right? Mm -hmm. Where, where 
So talk about that a little bit. Um, so yeah, I, I find um, I'm actually very good in social settings and have the ability to uh, have small talk or deep conversations with you know small to large groups. I, I lead um, large groups on a like a weekly to multi weekly basis, um, but it is still like after I've done that for a couple hours. Is incredibly draining. I need to withdraw myself in order to uh, regain that stamina. But I think, in regards to this question, it's interesting because this whole situation is allowing a lot of people to, because we are being forced into a certain amount of isolation, it also is kind of forcing a certain amount of introspection by the individuals and a lot of times we're we're just in this rat race and oh, you got to do yeah. that thing and you do the next thing and and you've got a plan and someone maybe someone else has defined the plan for you and all of a sudden um that plan has been uh thrown asunder and now we have the ability to reassess these things going forward yeah that's a good point although there, there's quite a few people who are you might say subject to other people's plans, like you know they're they're being told you still got to show up to work, mm-hmm. and um, you know now they got to figure out how that's going to happen and who's going to watch their kids and you know how they're going to make sure that they stay healthy. But but you're right, there's a lot of people right now who are who have a lot of time on their hands, and they can. It's kind of fortunate that we we live in the world of technology that we have now, especially mobile technology. So it's so easy to stay in touch uh, for so many people. Um, but it's still not quite the same. And, you know, one, I suppose I just thought of this now, if you didn't want to have, um, contact with people, uh, while they're reaching out to you electronically, you could just say, well, I'm not feeling good today. Uh, how would they know? Mm-hmm. You know? Right. <laughs> or you could, or you could say, ah, you know, my internet's not, my internet is being overtaxed by all the other people in the neighborhood who are using it. So my bandwidth is really not working well right now. <laughs> so, so if people could use that, I suppose, as, as an excuse to, to get themselves some free space if they wanted it. You know, coming back to this, this notion of uh, what's good and what's bad, you know, one way we could look at the introvert, extrovert, do we talk about it as a spectrum or uh, I'd say like a spectrum is, is better than a binary there. Yeah. So maybe what it means to be extroverted is is valuing as good human interaction much more for its own sake than introverts do. And also not viewing like the what, what do we want to call it, like the pressure of, of having to be involved with other people or being bombarded by their ideas and stuff, not viewing that as as something that is bad and not being averse to it. Whereas the introvert would would perhaps um, be more susceptible to, to that and might also value solitude or being on their own as something that's actually good, you know, um, whereas the uh, I guess I, the extrovert perhaps doesn't do that. I guess I, I, I push back against that definition a little bit because um, like as as more introverted than extrovert, I don't think that interaction is a bad thing uh and i i value both um i just know that one is more taxing on me than the other yeah i'm not saying interaction per se would be the bad thing it would be the sort of being bombarded being having to go beyond a certain level Mm. um you know a, a good good catchphrase for this um think about the this this is an, a meeting that could have been an email mm-hmm. 
You've heard that yeah, one before, right? right? Right. Okay, so so people were saying that before all of this crisis stuff, uh, and there have been many meetings that probably should have been an email. Extroverts are perfectly fine with that, right? Because they, they love showing up to meetings. <laughs> Introverts, you know, they realize what the hell am I doing here? Why am I wasting time with all this chit chat and you know the 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 minutes? We could have just we, we could have done this through some other thing too. It doesn't have to be an email. It could be like you know meeting virtually. Um, and, and it, so it wouldn't be the meeting per se. It would be something about the meeting, exceeding certain thresholds, we might say, of um, unnecessariness <laughs> that the introvert has has an objection to more than the extrovert does. I don't Does that make – does that work or, or are there flaws uh, with that as well, you think? Um, to a certain extent, like I, I work, worked in tech, and so those tend to be more introverted people, and so – the, yeah. the meetings tend to be very short and uh, oh man <laughs> you should be an academia oh god <laughs> Uh, how about I shouldn't be in academia? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm just saying you should be so that you could experience what what academic meetings are like. And this is total digression, but I'll say it, and I and it's it's not all that nice, but so you know before I actually. Uh, worked on on campus. I, I taught in prisons, and so I didn't have to go to faculty meetings. And then I started teaching uh, just in a regular position, and I'd have to go to faculty meetings. And I'd heard all my colleagues, you know, at conferences, oh, they're so terrible, you know. And I thought, oh, they must be like taking the wrong viewpoint on it or something like that. And then I started going to faculty meetings, and there's something weird that happens. You have all these really smart people, and usually you'd think, well, you put a whole bunch of smart people together, now we've got like a super group. No, something happens in so many meetings where it's almost like the, the intelligence level of everybody drops in the meeting setting, and things have to be repeated, and they take way longer to work out, and people misunderstand things, or you're like, how did you misunderstand that? Um, and I don't know if that's just endemic to academics. Um, I, I wonder but, if there's, man. Uh, like, going back to our, our good and bad or true goods that, like, the, the good of trying to get the right outcome is uh, butted up against the good of um, trying to look good in a social sense. And and so even though someone might have the, the wrong uh, opinion about the, the first topic, they're, they're trying to push their social capital up. And so they're, they're going for one good at the uh, fault of the other or at the, <laughs> at the detriment to the other. <laughs> Yeah, that kind of makes sense. Actually, that that would be an interesting thing to explore in some future show. You know, what what is actually happening in meetings? Yeah, we could we could. It might actually be a very helpful topic to explore. Yeah, uh, just the idea of what what is the the point of the meeting? If we can all agree, the point is to get the best outcome. Then maybe that helps put people in the the right state of mind to not be well. <laughs> Pushing their there, there's projects. getting there's getting people to agree to that sort of on paper or verbally, uh-huh. and then there's actually getting buy-in from them, mm-hmm. where where they'd set aside their own agenda, and and I think that's a lot harder to achieve much of the time, right? Yeah. And sometimes they may actually think that they're furthering the the fundamental good of the meeting, but they're not really mm-hmm. doing so because they've they've uh, identified it so much with their own hobby horse that they're going to ride into the sunset. So, so we should get to talking about um, our practice. The, 
Yeah, yeah, for, for, for the week. So do you want to introduce it? So yeah, our practice this week is uh, pause when you have an impression of the bad. And so the idea is when you um, perceive something that is that you have automatically been presented to your mind or your consciousness as bad, take a moment and real and look at it and see is this actually bad or is this just my perception of it as bad? Yeah. Now this is something that we do see in a lot of different spiritual and philosophical traditions. Um, the Stoics made a big deal out of this. Ep Epictetus actually says, with every harsh impression, take a pause, ask yourself, you know, is this what it presents itself as being? Impression, but we're going to talk about the meaning of that term. It could also be appearance or imagination. Buddhism has a whole set of practices uh, to, to engage these sorts of things. Um, later, Aristotelians and Platonists do as well. Um, you can find this running throughout, you know, medieval philosophy. And, and I, I think this is a, a very commonly discussed practice, but not a very commonly practiced practice. Right. And so it could be very helpful for us, right? So so when we... Now, it's not to say that, that something is just in our heads, because there are some things that are actually bad that could happen. And but you know, if we take a pause, we can we can distinguish between whether they, they just appear to be bad or whether they really are bad. Mm -hmm. And so... Appearance uh, in Greek is phantasia, and we use that also to translate impression. It's also the word we get fantasy from, which is, you know originally means something like imagination. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the time, you know, when we we encounter something and we think that it's it's uh, it's bad, we make a judgment about it, maybe without even really thinking it through. We could have. Uh, we could have, you know, implanted a lot in the situation through our own imagining about it. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we don't even have to be in the situation. We can just bring it up in our minds and we are, we're already, you know, off to the races proverbially imagining how bad this thing is going to be. So uh, let's, take a kind of, let's take a silly example. What if you ran out of toilet paper? Mm -hmm. uh, you know? Well, at first I'm like, oh, no, what would I do? But then I take a step back. It's like, okay, what are the other options that I have to deal with this? Maybe a yeah. a warm rag with some soapy water would be. A yeah, is this is this really the end of the world? What did people do before this modern invention existed? Right. <laughs> And, and, you know, we could take all sorts of other things. You start, uh, here's another great example. You start having a, a dry cough and you feel kind of feverish. It's, it's absolutely COVID-19. It's, it's the thing. I feel bad. Yeah, yeah. So you, you can take a pause and it, it might turn out to be that the bad thing that you think is, is, is presenting itself really is presenting itself and it really is bad. But you can reduce your anxiety considerably and also reduce your sort of panic reactions, uh, which might not manifest as panic, but might manifest in terms of other emotions like anger and irritation with those around you, or sadness, or uh, you know, morosity, or pick whatever else you want. There's a lot of uh, negative emotions that we experience. You can sort of head those off at the past because our emotions, to some degree, are up to us, right? Mm -hmm. And another way to look at this is kind of the illustration of an optical illusion 
and you you first see an optical illusion and you are given an impression that like maybe it is a, a square but then if you walk around it 90 degrees you look at it and you realize it's a circle or some other oblong a weird shape that only from certain angles does it actually appear as one thing or the other. And so if you look at this the same way as you think of things when you first think of them as bad, take a moment to examine them from different perspectives, and you can realize what they are in and of themselves and take that ability and that moment to reassess if it's actually bad or just you thinking it's bad. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. And... I, th I like that idea of optical illusions because if you think about how we consume media, mm -hmm. we're always looking at optical illusions, right? <laughs> we're looking at these screens and we have no problem, you know, uh, looking at the screen and realizing that's not little people in there in my phone right. <laughs> doing things. Um, but when it comes to emotional matters and perceptions of things as being bad and then responding to them that way, there are quite often a lot of illusions along those lines that we could um, distance ourselves from and then kind of look around. So this, this leads to another sort of uh, key question to ask about this. It's one thing to say, okay, try this out, do this when, when things get tough. How do we how do we get ourselves to be able to do this? Mm -hmm. what, what do we need to do? Is this something that we would try to do before we get into bad situations, like practice it, uh, do some drills almost? What, what do you think? Absolutely. The only way for you to change the way that you're going to interact with um, real-world examples is if you have some a framework in your mind in order to already be able to go, oh, that's at hand, I can grab that. Whereas if you are thrown into um, situations and you have no practice, then you are, uh, it's going to take you significantly longer to try to implement this thing. And it might be already gone. You've, you've already passed that moment where you just accepted that it was bad in the first place and then just gone yeah, with it. Uh, that that's very good. So, you know, living an intentional life, which is what this show is all about, and that's why we're providing people with these practices and discussions of all these points. It's partly cognitive, right? We, we get our, our heads right about how things are. We think things through. Uh, that's where the philosophical theories can often be helpful. But it's also practical. We have to, like, engage in this sometimes on a daily, on a daily basis. And if we do that, then we're ready to put the ideas into action. Um, so any final thoughts for the program? Well, I'm hoping that this sounds good and works really well because I'm looking forward to doing more shows in this format. This seems like a, a really good way to do it. And I'm, I'm happy that we're able to keep contributing to our, our local community in this way. Thank you. I think it's it's going to be a, a rough ride here for a bit, but if we uh, take some time to assess our situations, um, I think we could all get through this a little bit better. Yeah, that's that's a good way to put it. And, and to go back to something we were talking about earlier, um, it really is important. This is, this is where we get tested about the things that we believe and say uh in terms of right and wrong and good and bad it, you know whether we're behaving like good or bad people and, and i guess one of the things that i do want to say is even if we screw up or if we haven't been great people in the past we also have an opportunity now to start doing things better 
doing things more thoughtfully, doing things in ways that do reach out to others, um, that, that over time transform who we are as people into better people. Great. Uh, well, thank you. And uh, goodbye, everyone. <laughs>